Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. There are a slew of stories, Pim, about uh, rental car companies teaming up with big tele- uh, technology companies to manage their driverless car fleet. And I thought this was fascinating. So let's bring in yeah, uh, Chrys- Chrysler minivans. Uh, maybe they'll even put another badge on it, Alphabet and, and their Waymo autonomous driving division. Yeah, well, I want to I want to get more context in this because it seems like a pretty big, significant uh, development. I want to bring in Alan Baum, principal at Baum and Associates, as well as our own Anand Srivastavan, uh, senior semiconductor and hardware analyst uh, at Bloomberg Intelligence. And Anand, I want to start with you. Um, yesterday, what was so significant that two agreements were reported? We had uh, Avis uh, coming up with something with Waymo to possibly manage their driverless uh, fleet. And then uh, Apple and Hertz appear to be discussing some kind of similar partnership. Why now? And, and what what really are these partnerships? Look, at the end of the day, these are complicated electromechanical machines. I think that technology companies have figured out that they need to be um, uh, partnering with somebody who has substantial experience in the vehicle department. So as much as driverless technology. Yeah, that would be a good thing, right? That I would mean, be a good thing yeah. because they take space. You need to do uh, substantial maintenance. Uh, maintenance, whether it's an electric vehicle fleet or an, a fuel injection vehicle. You need regular checkups on everything from tires to fluid levels to batteries, for example. And you just can't automate the whole thing just like you do with a server farm or um, a, a, a phone. So Much to the annoyance of people in the technology industry, uh, Significantly so. You can't... Uh, um, you can't put it in the cloud and forget about it. So, so this is that part of the. This is the messy part of the hardware that needs to be taken care of. Well, Alan, I want to bring you in here. Uh, are Hertz and Avis equipped to really manage a fleet like this? This isn't exactly their business. Well, they're not going to be managing the technology. They actually made pretty clear that uh, the Waymo uh, will be responsible for making sure both the hardware and the software of the autonomous vehicle uh, is functional. But it's also about distribution. Uh, you know, the idea, there's been a lot of, uh, of uh, surveys about how people view this, how the general public views it. And it's generally pretty negative. And the, the obvious reason is people don't know what they don't know. Um, and so, you know, this sounds pretty creepy that your car is driving, driving itself. And uh, so that there's a concern about that. With distribution, as people start to, to experience it, uh, then perhaps their, their views will become more positive. And so that's what this is about. And this is also a, a very good, I think, for the electric vehicle industry, because what it, it, uh, it's, it's an example of is when you talk about a Hertz and an Avis being involved, the cost of the, the service, of, of providing the service, is critical. And so to the extent that electric vehicles are going to be cheaper to run, I'm not really talking about cheaper to buy, but cheaper to run, then that's critical for these, these opportunities. And so we see the, the players that uh, are good at this, that are good at running fleets, getting more involved. So is this as much a recognition that the business model of rental car companies such as uh, 
budget and Avis budget and uh, Hertz Global that their business model aligns financially with the ownership and maintenance portion of these vehicles future because it's about scale as you said on absolutely see economic scale and technology is sort of the foundation of which large technology shifts occur right so uh, to mr baum's point it's a great distribution channel they know how to run and operate cars and they know how to run and operate cars cheaply so this and depreciate the value of those cars, the benefit of their shareholders. Exactly. And this allows technology to proliferate through their fleet better, faster, more effectively. That's point number one. The point number two is if you look at driver test technology enhancements, one of the things that we have written about extensively is this notion of collecting data from uh, uh, many, many, many number of points. This is one industry which needs a large amount of vehicles flying on the road to gather information. Who better do it from, rather than doing it one by one by one on an ownership basis, rental cars. Well, uh, the, and this raises a question. This raises my next question, Alan. I want to direct this at you. Uh, the significance of this is it that we're getting closer to the reality of a self-driving fleet that will actually get uh, implemented in urban areas or elsewhere? I mean, are, are we really see, are we at the precipice of a sort of sea change in transportation? I'm a little uh, cautious on that. Uh, you know, will this work in Manhattan? Will this work in San Francisco? Uh, yes. Um, but of course, it has to compete with the existing system. Well, well but beyond, uh, beyond, is, uh, but, but it, sorry, Alan, but beyond just will it work? I mean, is it going to be experimented with at this point? Is that the is that the significance? Anand, do you want to take that? Yeah, I think that I, I I don't know if it's Manhattan or San Francisco urban areas as much as it's going to I think start with um, large fleets of trucks. It's going to start with uh, closed compartmentalized um, uh, sort of gated communities, if you may, whether it's a campus network, whether it's universities. One of the things that we've said is university campuses may be ideal for an experimentation with that. And particularly on the West Coast, large um, urban or suburban corporate campuses would be ideal for such a fleet where um, you could experiment with the vehicles, you could experiment with buses, you could experiment with cars. But at the end of the day, you also need uh, urban data. You also need data from different parts. Of, you need rural data. You need data from all of these different parts. And I think that I'm not so sure I agree with uh, uh, with Mr. Brown in that I don't know if it's going to come sooner or later. But I think that this is we're going to try multiple different things. I think the experimentation with the rental car companies is a great idea. I think that. We might start with the universities, corporate campuses, et cetera. We have to experiment in order to collect this data to make this feasible. Alan Baum, you have a, uh, a response? The development process is growing at an at a amazing rate. I mean, literally, it's two or three items a, a week, um, and yesterday, two items in one day, uh, where there are all these collections of major players, both in the technology and the auto space and now in distribution. Um, so we're, we're seeing dramatic opportunities. Uh, obviously, not everything is going to work, and that's what the, the system is finding. I just saw a, a video of Tesla's new autopilot, uh, where it was uh, for about a 20-minute space, of where it did and did not work. But of course, in Tesla, 
Tesla's case, they're getting what Anand is saying, that data. Uh, they get the data whether you're using autopilot or not, and that data is critical to the development of the technology. And, of course, we've also got the regulatory issue, which is actually being discussed in Washington today, uh, where uh, the auto companies and the technology companies right. are saying we really don't want 50 states uh, having different uh, uh, different policies about this. Thanks very much. we got to leave it there. we got to run. Alan Baum, Principal Baum and Associates, Anand Srinivasan, Bloomberg Intelligence. Just type BI Go on the Bloomberg for more. Well, I am a little bit... Uh perhaps confused about one issue in the exchange-traded fund universe that this- Only one? <laughs> All right, fair enough, Pam. Uh, but you know, this has been the fastest growing aspect of the uh, asset management industry, and it is now an increasingly uh, actively managed industry because you have the passive uh, ETFs, which account for the majority of the assets under management, but there is the fastest growing component that is smart beta. To understand how actively managed ETFs fit into this this universe that's known for being passive. I want to bring in Tom Hoops, executive vice president and head of business development, uh, like Mason. Really glad to have you here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Lisa. can you explain where actively managed ETFs fit in to a universe that has gained popularity for being passive and cheap? Yeah, sure. I, I think it starts with thinking about the ETF as a vehicle as opposed to an investment strategy and separating that. I think the industry... In the media, often we get it wrong. We think about ETFs and market cap passive as being synonymous. And true, most of the volume that's been in ETFs to date has been in market cap passive. But ultimately, the ETF is just a delivery vehicle for an investment strategy. Yes, although part of the beauty of the ETF is its transparency, which doesn't always work with an actively managed fund, mm -hmm. particularly in less liquid areas, right? Um, as well as its ease of transaction. So it's sort of uh, it's supposed to be a proxy for a broad market that you can just easily access, right? It doesn't have to be a proxy for a broad market. I do think the, the ease of access is important. I think transparency has been an issue, and, and that is is a potentially a roadblock to broader adoption of delivering active strategies um, in an ETF, but it also has lower overall operating expenses and gives clients a better tax outcome. So as a wrapper, it's it's in many ways a better mousetrap than the 40 Act Mutual Fund. And so, you know, for clients and advisors and gatekeepers that want to access active strategies, which they, they, they still do in large numbers, having it in a more efficient, lower cost, tax-friendly wrapper, we think just makes sense. Does this also have to do with the way that the financial industry has evolved in the sense that if you are a great money manager, you can go out and create your own mutual fund and then people will want to invest based on your ability to produce the returns or the risk profile that they want. On the other hand, with an exchange traded fund, it seems to be the vehicle that is run by the larger financial institution based upon a desire obviously to market the investment but also to take advantage of whatever the strengths are of your financial institution. Yeah, so, so Pam, our, our strategy at Leg Mason has been to increase client choice in both investment strategies and in products and vehicles. And so getting the right investment strategy in front of a client or in a client's portfolio is most important. If they want to access that strategy through a mutual fund, through a separately managed account, 
through an ETF, through a collective fund, through a USITS fund, et cetera, that's, that's all fine. We want to be able to offer them that choice. Which asset classes are most uh, conducive to active management management and ETF per, uh, wrapper? I mean, what, what are you looking at to sort of expand into? Sure. Sure. So, so, so back to the transparency issue. As, as you know, the ETF vehicle, um, as it stands today, does require um, daily transparency. Um, we're certainly fine with daily transparency with clients. We're the second largest SMA provider um, in, the, in the U.S., and that means we provide, of course, daily transparency to our clients. But with an ETF, it's daily transparency to the market and market makers, and that can at time put your IP uh, at risk for front-running um, and, and other things that could be detrimental to the client. That is less of an issue in fixed income. And it's why you've seen to date the largest active ETFs have been in the fixed income space. It's harder to front run and get ahead of, of uh, fixed income securities and fixed income portfolios. On the equity side though, that is where I think the market is looking for some type of technology or solution to deal with the transparency issue so that we can deliver actively managed equity strategies um, in the advantages of the ETF vehicle. Let's talk, if you can, about uh, some of the results from a recent survey. Uh, this is the fifth annual uh, survey, I believe, that you've uh, or that you reference, and it has to do with the attitudes of investors. And I thought it was very interesting that you the, your expectations for certain levels of return are almost determined by your age and what you do. Yeah, I think I think Pim, there were a lot of interesting uh, results or eye-opening results when it came to investor expectations versus versus reality, and it did vary some by uh, generation. It varied some by whether one was was employed currently or retired. At the end of the day, though, there is still a, a pretty sizable gap between what investors think they're going to earn, particularly in in um, income-oriented investments versus where we think the world is now and where it'll be going forward. Well, it just said that the numbers, fully retired. If you're fully retired, you're looking at uh, overall a average rate of return of 6.2%, which is a lot more realistic than the 9% uh, that people who are employed of are course, seeking. Of course, they're more, uh, they're okay with investing in safer assets so that they can get a more predictable returns. They might just be also de-risking. Right, or maybe they just have everything they need. I'm sure they're more realistic. It. They're older too. <laughs> we we have seen again. It's persisted now for a few years in the survey. Uh, a, a large allocation to cash um, across all uh, generations in, in the 25 to 30 percent range. Wow. All right. Well, that's something to watch. And thank you very much for being with us. Tom Hoops is executive vice president and head of business development, Leg Mason, based in Baltimore. Well, we've all been adding up our cable and our mobile phone bills here in the studio, and the number is not pleasant. Here to help us understand it and the possible combination between Sprint and Charter and Comcast is Bloomberg Intelligence's own Josh Yatskowitz. He is a media and cable analyst, and Matthew Canterman. He is a telecom services as well as equipment analyst, and they join us in our studios. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. Uh, I'm not going to make you reveal your cable bills or you know how much it costs for your mobile service, but we were informally talking and realizing, my goodness, we are supporting, you know, at least three behemoth organizations. I want you to talk about some of them, Sprint, Comcast, and Charter. 
Uh, Matthew, maybe you want to start off by describing what do you think is going on here? Sure. So, so Sprint for a while has underinvested in its network. They've been constrained by very high leverage, low free cash flow. So they're looking for ways to finance network investments um, to catch up to their rivals, AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile has been the most aggressive recently. Um, a, an equity investment from the cable companies who Josh can speak to about their desire to get into wireless and offer quadruple play bundles to reduce their churn. You know, it, it suits all parties. It helps Sprint get cash to accelerate their CapEx and it helps the cable companies, you know, get good cheap access to the wireless airways that they need to, to lease to, to offer those services. So, Josh, let's bring you in. How how beneficial is it for Comcast and Charter? Because theoretically, as Matt was saying, you know, it does sound like there is some kind of benefit. And yet when you look at the share prices of both Comcast and Charter, both down. Sprint, though, is up because uh, investors are loving the idea of a possible bailout or extra cash. Yeah. So Charter and Comcast have actually been having wireless ambitions for a while Right now, they have a deal with Verizon, an MVNO deal, where they can utilize the the services. MVNO, you got to help us. MVNO, um, yeah. it's basically a way for them to utilize Verizon services without owning the network. So they're using it as um, a wholesale agreement. Um, so with Sprint, they could look into multiple options. One of which is doing another MVNO type agreement with Sprint, maybe getting better deal terms, or actually going out and buying Sprint. Uh, we tend to think that an MVNO is more likely that Comcast and Charter are going at this little slow, want to test the waters and also maybe in, uh, help Sprint, as Matt said, and vet, uh, inject some cash and see where the network goes. Just real quick, how much money is at stake? I mean, these MVNOs, these uh, these agreements to use the wireless network that Sprint has, how much would a Comcast or Charter pay for that? Well, the deal terms are not disclosed. I don't know if... Um, Matt has anything, but you saw what Comcast is charging its customers, and it's utilizing its Wi-Fi network, which has 16 million hotspots, so they can offload a lot of that data traffic onto the Wi-Fi network, reduce the overall cost from the MVNO, and actually get a um, positive return on that. Um, Matthew, I want to know about Sprint. I mean, do they need this deal? Is this, I mean, they need the cash, don't they? It seems like Masa needs a deal because he's been trying to sell Sprint for a while now. He's talked to T-Mobile, Joy to Telecom, the cable companies. He's talking to everybody. He talked to Charlie Ergen. He's shopping it around. He's shopping it around. Is so that he, the? Is that? Does that make sense? I mean, is that you know? It's sort of you're shopping something around. That must make it difficult to gain any kind of leverage and any kind of. Uh, it does, but but you know he put a lot of money into it, and it didn't work out the way he wanted. You know, Sprint's been unable to leverage the vast spectrum assets they have for all the reasons I said before. Um, you know, that's the value he saw, and they've been unable to monetize that for him. So he's looking at ways to to, to monetize his investment that he made in the company a few years ago. Also, being the head of SoftBank, which owns Sprint. Right. Exactly. Sorry. And so, um, you know, what what he what you know by shopping it around, he's trying to find the best deal and. You know, aside from just getting cash, I think one of the key assets the cable companies have is is the deep fiber and coaxial cable networks into the neighborhoods. If you think about, you know, particularly in the suburbs and the and the rural areas where they are the only provider or one of two providers of of those services deep into the neighborhoods, um, you know, Sprint can just stick up small cells on top of those and you know very cheaply, um, you know, expand the the quality and the coverage of its network and really become competitive with the likes of Verizon, AT and T, and T Mobile. I want to ask about whether this is anti-competitive or would this trip any anti-competitive wires, uh, Josh? It shouldn't because wireless, um, the wireless services that Sprint offers are complementary more to the wireline services that 
um, Comcast and Charter offer. It's not taking away a competitor in that space unless you argue that the wireless services could actually compete head-to-head with um, the wireline services, which we don't actually see in the market yet. You know, you're potentially seeing that with 5G on, on the last mile um, with wireless companies coming in and using backhaul on a 5G basis, but this is years out potentially. Matthew, what is your thought? And maybe just reference Verizon and its Fios product because that is trying to do the triple play bundle. So triple plays are very popular in the U.S., but we haven't taken the step like a lot of European Sorry, internet. uh, Home phone phone. and and TV services. Um, But we haven't taken the step to quadruple plays, which bundle mobile services in there like a lot of European countries have. I think one of the issues is the geographic constraints. We don't have national fixed line providers. Comcast isn't national. Charter isn't national. Fios isn't national. Whereas in France or or the Netherlands, much smaller countries, it's easier to have a national footprint. Um, And so, you know, the the geographic constraints really make it difficult to offer those quad play services on a national basis, which is why it's really never taken off. Thank you so much for joining us. Matthew Canterman, telecom and video game analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Also, our thanks to Joshua uh, Yatskowitz, uh, telecom cable and media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, I just have to wonder, you know, Sprint, it's been on the table for a while and it's been looking for some kind of bailout. It's interesting that two big cable companies are coming to it at the same time. Yeah, you never know. Well, in Europe, we actually have had quite a big move in uh, government bond yields. You can see two-year German yields rising to their highest level in about a year, albeit still negative half percentage point. So not not terribly high, let's just say. Uh, still haven't gotten It's positive. all relative. It's all relative. But I want to bring in Simon Ballard, who has a better sense on all of this and can give us uh, some perspective on why we're seeing this move and why we're hearing about ECB tapering. Simon Ballard is a global credit strategist for Bloomberg News in London. Simon, why did ECB's Mario Draghi's speech today? Well, Mario Draghi's speech at the ECB forum um, has addressed the the tapering issue, which has been on many people's lips and certainly in their minds for, for many months now. The, uh, the asset purchase program, the quantitative easing program that the ECB has gone through over the last couple of years uh, comes to a tentative end or a scheduled end at the end of this year. Um, and so the question now, now really is how will the market uh, react when the, the support mechanism um, is, is tapered, is taken away, uh, be it through asset purchases uh, being reduced? Um, and you've seen that this morning. We've had Monsieur Draghi suggesting that all being well, the uh, the nascent recovery in Europe will allow them to taper or at least to sort of scale back accommodation uh, between now and the end of the year or certainly the early part of 2018. And that's why we've seen this this uh, this rise in government bond yields. As you say, we're still deeply negative. We've still got major, major issues over here to consider. Um, but uh, it is a move in the right direction as far as Mr. Draghi is concerned. And it's certainly uh, moving the euro today against the dollar. One twelve eighty one right now. That's a gain of eight tenths of a percent. You know, I, I got to ask you. The, you know, the European Central Bank seems to be an equal opportunity lender. In other words, they'll buy almost any euro area investment grade non financial debt. I mean, it includes U.S. debt, Swiss debt, right, as well as all this other. They've added what ninety five billion. Euros, ninety-five billion. They've, the, the corporate bond purchase program, the, the corporate sector right. purchase program, which has been running since June of last year, um, has been accumulating bonds uh, probably at about sort of one and a half to two billion a week. So as you say, just uh, just shy of the hundred billion mark now. Um, yes, there are strict parameters for the for the bonds that they can buy. It's investment grade. It have to be euro domiciled. Um, 
But, you know, there are U.S. issuers that have a European base um, whose bonds have also found their way into the ECB's portfolio. And it's had a dramatic effect on spreads over the course of the last year. While we'd seen sort of uh, ebbs and flows and some modest widening through to mid-2016, there really has been a consistent a consistent tightening um, across the credit spectrum, not only through the bonds that the ECB has been buying, but I'd point out perhaps you know, many investors have been crowded out further down the quality curve, further down the credit curve, unable to buy the bonds because of the ECB's uh, reduced liquidity. Um, in those sectors. So we've seen a, a dramatic performance, even if we can't really yeah. quantify exactly what the ECB's done. You know, Simon, I think it's so interesting, the market response to Mario Draghi's speech, because first, uh, it was rather ambiguous. It wasn't like he came out and said, we're planning to discuss tapering in two months and then get it done by the end of the year. I mean, it was very ambiguous, and you could yeah. kind of read into it what you wanted, uh, but it seemed to hint at some kind of normalization. Uh, that's number one. But number two, the response has been pretty significant in U.S. markets, too. We saw the 30-year yield in the U.S. rise the most in almost two months. And it makes me think the ECB is absolutely the central bank that's in control right now of global bond markets. Would you agree? Well, I, I think there's sort of the, the, there's a very, very solid link between all global central banks and more importantly, the rhetoric between those central banks. Um, and the fact that the ECB is even hinting at, albeit with as many caveats as you'd like to offer, um, that they would like to move to a tapering sort of uh, position uh, later this year um, is positive really for, for the global economy, because to a certain extent, the ECB, the Eurozone's economy has been a drag on the US, has been a drag on sort of the global growth picture. So if that starts to improve, then we can start to take a more positive uh, spin um, to, uh, to sentiment within the US as well. Simon, is it possible that the European Central Bank, and of course, we don't know what the Federal Reserve is going to do specifically with its own balance sheet, but that central banks have gone out to buy the best and have therefore crowded everybody else in to buy the junk? when it really should have been the other way around, because now you have a situation where they don't know what to do with this. They could sell it into the market, but what would that displace? You'd sell your junk and buy this investment grade that they were selling back. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's the big question is to, you know, when you start tapering, and we discussed this about the Bank of England, whose, uh, whose corporate bond purchase program ended, uh, ended earlier this year. Um, it's what they do with the portfolio, whether they manage, whether they actually look to sell the bonds that they've accumulated over the last couple of years, which I think would be disastrous for the market and, 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 and send spreads significantly wider as they start to liquidate uh, their holdings. They can they could extend the program, of course, you know, that we're talking about tapering. But if anything happens between now and the end of the year, some surprise shock on a macro oil commodity related uh, aspect, then, you know, there's the possibility that they extend or they run run rate of seven billion, right? Seven billion euros. (laughs) Absolutely. If they if if, a month, if if the if the needs there, then um, thank you very much. Well, I'm sure he'll be he'll be they've given they've they've, they've spent so much time and energy getting to the position now of bringing down funding costs for trying to and you could you could argue that the funding mechanism wasn't broken for European corporates before they started this. But nevertheless, funding costs have come down so dramatically over the course of the last year that they're certainly not going to do anything to jeopardise the position that they've got themselves into now by tightening too early. But at the same time, they are keen to move back to a normalisation start, just as the Federal Reserve is in the United States. Real quick, Simon, is Mario Draghi just responding to German pressure to get rid of this uh, asset purchasing programme? I think at the end of the day, he's paying lip service to uh, to, uh, to Chancellor Merkel. Yes, and they've been one of the uh, the uh, one of the big argues against uh, uh, against QE in its current form for uh, for many months now. So you know, it, it is politics. It is it is trying to massage the uh, the uh, the political relationships across the across the divide the divide within the eurozone, should I say? Um, but at the same time, I think he is 
he's, he's, he needs to recognise that you know the efforts of the ECB have been positive over the last uh, over the last year and so. I want to thank you very much, Simon Ballard, global credit strategist for Bloomberg, joining us from London. And we didn't even get to talk about Brexit. Next time. Next time. All right. That's uh, Simon Ballard joining us. Really great, uh, great stuff. Read more about it at Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.